0: This is an ABC podcast. Here's the thing about China, and I'm generalising a bit here, but almost all discussion about China's economic influence in the world is filtered through a superpower conflict narrative. It's all about China versus the US or China catching up with the US or China being likely to surpass the US. And because that narrative is so powerful in the West, particularly in Anglophone countries, we tend to assume that China's economy is really just a mirror of the US version, an aspiring copycat. After all, it has its own tech sector, its own multinational corporations, and its own super-rich tech titans, like Jack Ma of Alibaba fame. China might not be a democracy, but it pretty much operates a classic market-driven, for all intents and purposes, capitalist economy, even if its leaders in Beijing still like to talk about socialism with Chinese characteristics. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Now, according to our guest today, that way of thinking about China might be deeply entrenched, but it's fundamentally flawed. Frank Dakota is an historian based in Hong Kong, who won the Samuel Johnson Prize for his trilogy on China under Mao. What sets his scholarship apart is that it's not based on outsider speculation. Frank spent the better part of a decade extensively combing through numerous Chinese archives, archives that were subsequently closed as Xi Jinping gradually cemented his authority. In his latest book, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower, Professor Dakota provides a very different narrative about the nature of Chinese economic power. By its own admission, he argues, the Chinese Communist Party is a leopard that cannot change its spots. The economy it now oversees is an economic cauldron powered by massive debt, party political spin and ideological dogma a unique fusion of ersatz capitalism and rigid central planning and unless we in the west get a better understanding of its complexity global future prosperity is far from assured frank Dakota
1: i think it might be helpful if we go all the way back to uncle karl marx he said that the means of production must belong to the state only then can you achieve socialism and ultimately communism? What are the means of production? It sounds a little bit like Marx's jargon, but it's really everything that goes into the production process. If you wish to grow a carrot, you will need land. You will need fertilizer. You will need power. You will need a workforce. If you produce commodities, you'll need raw materials, a factory, energy. All of that must belong to the state. What does the Communist Party do after 1949 when the red flag goes up in Beijing? over the Forbidden City. For a decade or so, Chairman Mao and the party pretty much do precisely that. They take the means of production and make sure they belong to the state. In crude terms, that means they take the land from the farmers. They take the banks from the bankers, the shops from the shopkeepers. If you run a small timber factory by 1956, you'll be a state employee. You're a farmer, you're a state employee. Everybody by 56 is a state employee. Now, is the Communist Party willing to let this go after the death of Mao 1976? Well, the answer is no, absolutely not. It took them a decade to get that. They're not about to let go of these means of production. To this day, the state directly or indirectly controls the means of production. There's not one person in the People's Republic of China who actually owns a plot of land.
0: And you point out in your book that 95 out of 100 of the top private companies in China today are still either owned by the Chinese Communist Party or have connections to the party.
1: Yes, what I say to be technically correct is that by 2005, 95% of the 500 greatest companies are in the hands of the party. In fact, you can go a little bit further and say that while, of course, far more leeway was given to the markets in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and to a lesser extent to this day, the the key point really is that from the year 2000 onwards, the turn of the millennium, really, Jiang Zemin wants to establish party cells inside private enterprises. These party cells, of course, make all the key decisions It means that by roughly 2004, 2005, the distinction we make, which is a distinction which might have been useful for China in the 80s and 90s, the distinction we have between private and public actually is meaningless. You can be a billionaire in the People's Republic of China and wake up
0: under arrest or disappeared, but also
1: with all of your assets now belonging to the
0: state. And that's accelerated under Xi Jinping, hasn't it? Yes. But the key point here,
1: the historical issue is reasonably straightforward. Is Xi Jinping some sort of departure from the norm? Or is he merely uh, one in a series of leaders who wished to accomplish something? And that something is a socialist economy. I think Xi Jinping quite clearly is a continuity. At no point. Did Deng Xiaoping, who came to power after Mao died in 76, a few years later, at no point did Deng Xiaoping or anyone else for that matter actually stand up and say, We want the separation of powers. We want a capitalist free market. No point did they say this. And most importantly, at no point did they actually want it. It has always been about building up a socialist economy.
0: We know that how China's economy fares and how it develops will have an enormous impact on all of our lives in the world. Yet you say that its economy remains largely a black box, even to even to senior Chinese leaders. How is that possible?
1: Well, if you are in a one-party state, that means there is no separation of powers, there's no freedom of press, there's no independent judicial system. You have decided, for ideological reasons, that it is important that all power is concentrated in the hands of either one party or one individual. If you read the constitution of the People's Republic of China, you will see that it is a dictatorship and not just any kind of dictatorship, the dictatorship of the proletariat. What does that mean? It means that you must concentrate all of this power to make sure that no bourgeois elements can somehow subvert power and lead down the road away from socialism towards capitalism. That too, by the way, is in the constitution. It's one of the four cardinal principles inscribed in the constitution by Deng Xiaoping in 1982. One of these four principles is uphold the socialist way. These four cardinal principles are repeated time and again by every leader. Last time was in November 2022 by Xi Jinping. Now, when you focus all power when you concentrate in the hands of a party, it means that politics is number one, and by definition, all the rest is number two, including science, truth, and of course, the economy. In other words, in a one-party state, a socialist one, decisions are made by party members. Decisions about the economy are not made by entrepreneurs, not made by consumers, by a market. Capital's not allocated by people who invest or buy shares or open businesses or you know, play in a rock band in a garage or try to develop some new technology. It's done by the state, so this is how it works. Ordinary people, many of them farmers, deposit their savings into banks. These banks belong to the state. The state decides what to do with these savings. Let's have a massive project, you know, one belt, one row, or let's have a great leap forward or let's build vast amounts of new buildings, or let's just destroy the railway station we have, says the local party leader, in a small city somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and let's build a new one, even if there is no real need for it, it just looks good. In other words, it is not the market that allocates capital, it is the party and as a result, it is not capitalist, it is socialist.
0: And picking up on that point, we often think of China as being ruled with an iron fist from Beijing. But there are lots of provincial leaders who have a great sway over many issues, including economic matters.
1: Absolutely. All too often we think of the dictatorship, whether it is, you know, in the People's Republic of China or whether it would be uh, under Adolf Hitler in Germany, as order order from above, an authoritarian model. But even under the Nazis, it was chaos to a great extent. And in the case of the PRC, what is so remarkable is the extent to which local party members wield power. You could call these local governments, but of course it goes much further. Central government, local government. But local government, what does that mean? Could be certain institutions within a particular factory One factory party member might have a great amount of clout versus someone else. It's all about who has the power to make decisions, and also, by implication, who has the power and the clout to deflect all this from above, to ignore them, to turn a blind eye, to use the resources for local benefits or one's own benefit. In other words, to put it slightly differently, there is a cat and there are mice. The mice are the people. The cat has to constantly try to fight these mice. But there are many cats. There's one cat in Beijing, but there are also local cats. And the cat in Beijing has a great difficulty in herding other cats. But that's, that's the true problem. And, and, and as, as you
0: it- point out in your book, that can lead to enormous waste. While China's economy, while its society has grown over the decades, there have been trillions of dollars wasted on unnecessary projects, haven't there?
1: Well, absolutely, but just just one final point, because I think it's so important we forget about this. We think history doesn't really matter, it's all over. But the point is that during the Cultural Revolution, Chairman Mao pretty much destroys many of the institutions of the party, the Communist Party, he allows ordinary people to, to criticize party members. So when China emerges out of the Cultural Revolution, when Mao dies, it has a, a party which is very, very weak. This is followed by more decentralization So from 1989 onwards, once the tanks move out of Beijing, some 200 of them, once they've crushed the people in Beijing and elsewhere, there is an, a continuous attempt by Deng Xiaoping, Zhang Zemin, all the other leaders up to Xi Jinping to get the power back from local governments to the center. That's been the key sort of historical movement. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens when you allocate capital, whether it is done by the big cat in Beijing or, or by local cats, local governments, of course, these are political leaders. These are not economists. These are not producers or consumers. They're just people who follow what they think some sort of political uh, imperative. So there's massive waste at every level. 1997, we have a very interesting point because we have some statistics that come from the diary of a man called Lee Ray, who was very high placed. He points out that by 1997, as the Asian crisis hits, officially, some one-fifth of all production ends up in warehouses, sewing machines, bicycles. But when he goes around and actually speaks to the top leaders, he discovers that more like two-fifths, two-fifths of all production ends up in warehouses, some 68 square kilometers of warehouses in which stuff that will never sell accumulates. And this goes on and on. So the waste here is enormous. Also, you know, cities that stand half empty, railway stations are hardly ever used, airports where you can just look, both to the right and to the left, and see nothing but empty corridors.
0: And we know in the West about some of this waste, about some of this overproduction, unnecessary production, holding the economy together, but we tend to forget it. We don't tend to focus on it when we look at China's economy and its health and what impact it could have on the rest of the world. Why is that?
1: Because there seems to be an illusion or an idea that China somehow is different. That I think summarizes the whole approach. China is different. We can talk about Kenya or Zimbabwe or Japan or South Korea or Argentina, but the moment we talk about China, oh, things are different, slightly racist really, as if normal laws of economics and politics and human behavior somehow disappear the moment we talk about China. The point really is that so many terms that we use to describe the PRC may sound similar, but simply means something very different. GDP, here you go. We've been told time and again, China had growth of 10% every single year. But GDP, I mean, growth is a quota, which is given by the party. When the party decides we will obtain 5% of growth this year, that is a mandate, it's a quota which you must fulfill. So how do you fulfill it? With a local secretary, your advancement, Your promotion depends on whether or not you can achieve this quota. So in some extreme cases, you could dig a hole and pour concrete into it. That would contribute to your local GDP, which will contribute to your promotion. So economic growth in free, open market economies is calculated in a whole number of different ways. It's a very difficult thing to do. I'm no expert. But again, it's not the same when it comes to the People's Republic of China. It's it's a quota. And it's the same with so many other terms that we use when we talk about banks, we assume they're more or less, you know, independent, but they're not. These are state banks. They don't function the same way.
0: And some of this manipulation of terms, some of it has been accepted, hasn't it, or conceded by senior leaders. I mean, you've got two remarkable quotes in your book from Li Keqiang, the former Premier, who was nominally in charge of the economy. And who once described figures for domestic output as man-made and therefore unreliable. And there's another quote from an economist who is the deputy director of the People's Bank of China in 2019. And this is the quote, basically China's economy is built on speculation and everything is over-leveraged. Yes. What What does that mean in terms of the precariousness of China's economy? Should we be worried about it inevitably going from boom to bust? Well,
1: I may sound a little bit predictable, but my answer is always the same. It's a socialist economy. (laughs) So what does that mean? It means, and it's a one-party state, it means that this is a party that has prepared for runs on banks for decades. There were runs on banks well before Tiananmen Square in 1989. It is a socialist economy, so it can print more money. It can soften any downturn. It can... Promote consumption, quote, unquote, by throwing more money, even more money uh, into the machine. It can do a great number of things that no open democracy could possibly do. In other words, bust is unlikely to happen. But a slow decline, I think we've already been witnessing this for several years.
0: Because the economy is substantially built on debt. Yes, this is the extraordinary thing. Is that the overall
1: total debt through GDP is, is something in the order of the last number I saw quoted was two hundred and seventy three percent. All these numbers are of course specious because the reality is that we don't know and they don't know. They don't know because your local party secretary is not going to tell Beijing how much that there is. Well, there is a, a great amount of shadow hidden debt with local government financing vehicles which are designed to get around some of the restrictions imposed by Beijing. So we don't know, but it's enormous. That much we do know. It's enormous and it keeps on growing. Of course, Singapore has a great amount of debt, but it's that that can be absorbed. It's that that has been created for productive reasons. If you have a mortgage in Australia, then you have debt. But that doesn't mean that this is a bad thing. You can outgrow the debt ultimately. But what we're talking about here is something that is historically quite extraordinary, way above any other country. And there seems to be a lot of debt, again, caused by massive misallocation of capital.
0: And today on Future Tense, a feature interview with noted historian Frank de whose latest book, China After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower, challenges many of the perceptions we have about the nature of Chinese economic development over past decades and the future direction of the country. Frank de Cotta, even detractors of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, will sometimes begrudgingly say that despite its faults the party's economic stewardship has lifted tens of millions of people out of poverty. What would your response be to that?
1: Well Chinese people have lifted themselves out of poverty. How did they get into poverty in the first place? Tens of millions of ordinary people in the countryside starved or beaten to death during the great leap forward from 1958 to 62 followed a few years later by about a decade of organized chaos, organized from the very top, called the Cultural Revolution. So if by 1976, standards are lower than they were in 1949, then that primarily should be the fault of the party itself. So if people afterwards manage to lift themselves out of poverty, there's to a great extent thanks to their own initiative, and this is something one should never underestimate. I mentioned earlier on the cat and the mice the mice of the people, they did very well during the 1980s. And then bit by bit, more of their activities are being curbed, in particular in the countryside. The overall picture really is is a very complex one. The countryside thrived during the 80s, but now again, if you look at it, it is the victim of massive, we talked about allocation of resources, allocation of capital, is the victim of massive lack of investment. all this investment, since 1949, in fact, has gone towards cities, you know, buildings, railways, bullet trains, you name it, but very little investment in the countryside. Or to put it even differently, this is a country run by a communist regime that has invested massively in infrastructure, but not into its own people. So you can walk around the countryside today, and you will see that a large proportion, larger than anywhere else, either in Africa or in India, a large proportion of children who are nearsighted and need reading glasses cannot afford them. You'll find that fewer people, children, in the countryside go to high school than in virtually any other country or most other countries in the developing world. So poverty that coexists with relative wealth in cities, on the other hand. You quoted Li Keqiang.
0: This is the former premier.
1: He himself said it. He said in 2022 that some 600 million people have to manage on less than 140 US dollars a month. That's the exact quotation. It's a very small amount. So Li Keqiang himself pointed out in 2022, 600 million people have a very hard time, live in relative poverty.
0: Now, he lost his position earlier this year. And there's been lots of reporting about Xi Jinping Filling positions within the government with his own supporters—that wouldn't have come as a surprise to you, would it? No, no.
1: What we have seen, Li Keqiang has gone. There was always this notion, somehow, that the number two, so to speak, was a sort of counterbalancing act. I think that notion may have been a little exaggerated. Certainly, under Mao from forty-nine to seventy-six, it would have been very dangerous to to be a number two. Joe Allen never wanted to be anywhere near it simply because it doesn't end very well. Uh, Li Shaoqi number two, was a victim of the Cultural Revolution, died in abject conditions after torture in a prison. Lin Biao, who then became number two, died in a mysterious plane accident, not no doubt organized by Zhou Enlai. So, so much for the cult of number two. It is true, though, that from 76 until recently, a number two like Zhu Rongqi on the the Zemin in the 1990s had some cloud. And that seems to have very much gone recently. But it's not, as I said, it's not entirely surprising. It's it's implicit in the playbook of one-party states. In any one-party state, if there is concentration of power, it always ends up being concentrated in the hands of one individual.
0: Xi Jinping, like Vladimir Putin, seems to be convinced that the West, and in particular America, is in terminal economic and social decline. How is that belief likely to influence future developments with China and, and its relations with the rest of the world?
1: Well, it has influenced it from forty nine. Again, we have to go back to Uncle Karl, basics, Marx. What did he say? Well, what is Marxism besides an uh, economic philosophy? It is a philosophy that has been foretelling the imminent collapse of the capitalist system. And we're still somehow waiting about a century and a half later. But there's a profound conviction on the part of every Marxist, whether in uh, the old Soviet Union or within the PRC. Now, that capitalism is about to collapse. They have believed this all along since' 49, when they commanded the Cultural Revolution and they traveled around the world in '76, '77, '78, they come back, some of these missions, come back with reports showing how the United States is about to collapse because its inflation rate is so high and unemployment is uncontainable. A key moment surely is 2008 with the collapse of the Lehman Brothers and the whole banking system, not just in the United States, but also elsewhere. At that point, really, the party becomes convinced that socialism really is the superior system and capitalism is falling under their very own eyes, they can see it happening. From 2008, hubris really takes over. Well before Xi Jinping, hubris takes over as Chinese leaders go around the world lecturing all these foreigners at Davos and elsewhere about their economic model and their failure to build up a stable system. And of course, they promote socialism with Chinese characteristics. That is still the case to this day. Of course, Xi Jinping here is no departure, but there's something else that really matters a great deal. It's not just that capitalism is about to collapse, hence you must consolidate, not depart from the socialist way. It's also the notion somehow that this imperialist camp, these capitalist powers are surrounding China and are trying to infiltrate and subvert it. In particular, what matters here is the notion of peaceful evolution, give me 1 minute to explain what this is. It's a notion which is proposed by an American secretary of state John Foster Dulles in I believe 1957. His notion is that if you help satellite states from the Soviet Union like Poland and Hungary if you help them with their economy they will evolve peacefully into a democratic system. And that is exactly what happens in the case of Poland and other countries in 1989 as the Poles vote themselves out of communism and evolve peacefully into a democracy from that point onwards, 1989. Peaceful evolution is the key target of the party. Jiang Zemin in particular, all the way to Xi Jinping, dread it. So whenever you have a foreign head of state, let's say Kevin Rudd, since you are in Australia, or Bill Clinton, or Obama, or any one of the Bushes who says, to a Chinese leader, we will help you economically, so that you will peacefully evolve into a democracy, you know. When they say, with economic reform, there will be democratic reform, political reform, that is all the leaders in Beijing need to understand that what these leaders have in mind is infiltration and subversion of state power. They want the Communist Party to collapse and they must fight this notion of peaceful evolution. That's where we are.
0: And that set of beliefs is not likely to change. Well, no. Here we are in Hong Kong. What is Hong Kong?
1: It's a place which has been used and infiltrated by Western powers to
0: subvert power. In summary, what are the main points we should understand about China's rise as a superpower and and the current direction and, and structure of its economy? I've
1: spent 30 years watching China experts tell us that China was going to become a thriving democracy with political reform, and its economy was doing so incredibly well. Well, they were wrong. So I'm not one uh, to—you should know what you do not know. I do not know. But I can tell you something I already said earlier on. Since it is a pretty robust socialist economy, by robust I mean there's a pretty good grip on the means of production, I think a, a sudden collapse is extremely unlikely. You will see retreat. You will see something that Chairman Mao already proposed during a particular phase of the Cultural Revolution. It's called self-reliance. Sidi Gongsheng is also a notion that the North Koreans used. We must rely on our own forces. In other words, more of the retreat behind a Great Wall and more of an attempt to create a reasonably self-contained, self-reliant economic entity. may not be that easy.
0: Well, Frank Dakota, author of China After Mao, The Rise of the Superpower, thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense. You're welcome. And Professor Dakota is a noted historian of modern China, a Samuel Johnson Prize recipient, and he's based at the University of Hong Kong. Next week on Future Tense, we revisit the idea of the wood wide web, the theory that trees communicate through a hidden network of underground fungi. It's an idea we explored on the program several years ago and will bring you an update on the latest research. We'll also hear about a European initiative to use purpose-built drones for short-haul cargo flights. That's next time on the show. My thanks, as always, to co-producer Karin Savanovic. I'm Anthony Funnell. Cheers and bye for now.